So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Julian Walker, and we are sorry to announce that Matthew has joined QAnon. Yeah, we, he had a good run with us. We really tried to rehabilitate him, but no go, no go with that. Yeah, that that cult susceptibility just finally caught up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's going to be mad at this part. Uh, Matthew is on a well-deserved vacation with his family somewhere near the Arctic in Canada. And so uh, we will be hearing from him with his interview later with Alex Oder and as well as his closer. Uh, but for now, you can find us on Facebook, on YouTube on our website, conspirituality.net, as well as on Patreon, patreon.com slash conspirituality, where if you are enjoying these episodes, you can support us that way and get uh, access to exclusive content. All right. So episode 15, Tantra, Sex, Death, and Chaos. For decades, Neo-Tantra has been an industry focused on sex workshops and orgasmic bliss. Perhaps overlooking the fact that the Kama Sutra is effectively a patriarchal instruction manual and Tantra's grassroots origins in the lower castes of Indian society. These were responding to lofty metaphysical ideas with practical rituals that everyone could partake in. From that perspective, this modern industry marketed by Shiva Shakti figurines is actually another example of capitalist yoga in a privileged society, and this should not be surprising. Derek opens this week by discussing a red-pilled light video by Danielle Laporte. I'm looking forward to your analysis of this. Well, I discuss uh, what is actually an intensely personal story related to Tantra and also some of the underpinnings around a, a very sort of fierce group of yogi sadhus named the Aghori, who have a particular take on Tantra that is interesting to look into. We break from all this Tantra talk during Matthew's interview with Alex Auder. She's a veteran yoga instructor who uses comedy as a relief mechanism from the QAnon craziness in the yoga world under quarantine. Matthew will end this week's episode with what I found a, a, a powerful reflection. I've seen, the, I've seen his talk 
on his history with a Tibetan Buddhist Tantra and how he sees echoes of its archaic elements showing up in undigested form in the QAnon Imaginarium. Yeah, thanks, Julian. I think we have a good balance this week because I know the stories that are coming are pretty personal and intense, and yeah. yet the interview with Alex is funny. So we're <laughs> we're trying to find that like dark balance with that Tantra is all about in the first place. Uh, so it'll be an interesting ride. But yesterday I was sent a video by Daniel Laporte from one of our listeners, Jenna Rainier. So first off, thank you, Jenna, for sending that. And while I'm not that familiar with Laporte's work, I have a few friends that really love her. And in the past, I've seen material, material from her that I appreciate. So this segment isn't about some serious QAnon indoctrination. Yet on some levels, the type of thinking that Laporte shares in her video is exactly what leads to inaction and complacency on the left. And it highlights why I've been frustrated by the wellness community for decades. And Laporte isn't particularly a wellness person, but she is on Oprah's one top 100 list and self-help is part of her, you know, part of her marketing. And, and I get that and that's fine. Uh, so I would put her at least on the periphery of all of these figures we talk about. Now, her video, which is linked to in the show notes, questions the use of the term conspiracy theory. And from 30,000 feet, a few of her comments are really insightful. Uh, we do get bogged down too much, especially on social media. Uh, these platforms that we use make us too reactionary. And we don't spend enough time listening, and we do spend too much time shouting. Uh, I'm summating all of this, but so far, all good. Uh, my contention with the video is that conspiracy theories are a real thing, and we need to be able to identify them. Um, basically, the port wants us to stop using that term, and I feel that throwing out the term because it's overused isn't really helpful. And in fact, I believe it's pretty dangerous. Now, at one point in the video, Laporte says, do not DM me about QAnon. I've got no patience for that association. And that's great. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> you can read my screen. But, but she follows that by saying, although there might be some truth in things. Now, that alone, that sentence is a little disconcerting because and you immediately talk about QAnon and then you're saying things. It's like, call it for what it is. Now, Laporte prefaces her line of questioning by discussing conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, such as big tobacco. And there was a concerted effort by the tobacco industry to hide damning data and promote cigarettes as healthy. And when healthy didn't work out, they pivoted to not harmful. But these companies always knew better. And this sort of marketing ploy is chronic in corporate industry. Agricultural products, fossil fuels, opioids, and antidepressants are all examples of products created by companies with vested interests that actively lie to keep the profits rolling in. Here's the thing. These are not conspiracy theories. Perhaps in the 80s and 90s, execs and the marketing companies they hired spun it that way, but this was never really Area 51 territory. A more recent example is the earthquakes being caused by fracking. 
there were cover-ups of the data by fossil fuel companies, but then that came to light. And QAnon is much different than all of this. And relating big tobacco to this actual conspiracy theory is disingenuous. Now, in her defense, Laporte applies a perfectly valid critical thinking exercise in her video. The problem is context. She argues that all communication begins with an intention and then, and then says we need to seek common ground, think critically, and create empathy, and that only united we will find solutions. And this is the wedge that bothers me. Now, I'm all for nonviolent solutions. One of my martial arts instructors used to say that if you get into a fight, you've already lost. But sometimes the fight comes to you and you don't have a choice in the matter. When I was on the poetry scene in the 90s, I remember running into a fellow poet at one particular reading and he was really shaken up. The previous weekend, he was attacked while getting on the elevator in his building. And when his attacker pulled out a knife, he was able to maneuver around him and turn the knife back on him. Now in the process, my friend killed his attacker. He was not a violent person and killing another human really haunted him for a long time. But if he didn't do it, he would have died. He didn't have a choice. And I don't know what it's going to take for Americans to realize that we're being rushed at with a knife right now. There's plenty of documented evidence that QAnon is rooted in anti-Semitism and white nationalism. We know the absurd numbers of children being trafficked promoted by QAnon are fake. We also know that the theory is being promoted heavily in Romania and Russia. Russia <laughs> just made the Trump out of Russia. And <laughs> that they're specifically targeting Americans in order to indoctrinate them and create chaos in our country. If you want to talk about all communication beginning with an intention... The intention is the dissolution of our democracy, and right now they're succeeding. So you cannot sit there with a straight face and tell your audience to look for the truth in an ideology that posits a sexual predator as the world savior, rescuing the planet from a race of reptilian overlords and expect to be taken seriously. Now, by way of comparison, Marianne Williamson's recent Newsweek column provides another example. And while I'm very happy she's calling out QAnon, she ends her piece by writing, the only real remedy is an awakening of the heart and the manifestations of collective love. No, that is not a remedy. That's not the remedy we need, and it's not going to work. The remedy begins at the ballot box, and with the money used to support candidates that might help us get out of this mess. And I know we're in danger of not being able to even vote properly right now, so the remedy goes far beyond that. Now, these aren't the only solutions, but they're a beginning. This nonsense about only love winning the day is great for people who like watching movies, those... Hollywood pedophiles are known for producing, but in this context, in this age, right now, you're only enabling slacktivism and inaction, hashtag and memes, when what we need are ballots and money. This is part of the reason Trump got into office in the first place, and if this thinking continues, it's going to be what keeps him there. Even Gandhi knew that war is sometimes necessary, 
It's never an ideal solution, but you don't always have a choice. And this war right now looks different from any other that humans have ever faced because it's on an entirely new battlefield. So Laporte asks us to look for patterns. And if you can't see the patterns that this conspiracy theory of QAnon is utilizing, then this already fragile democracy that we've had the privilege to enjoy. And I know that Laporte is Canadian, but she is invoking an American conspiracy theory in her video. So this democracy is not going to be around much longer if we continue down this path. And that is not a conspiracy. Yeah, I, I found her, her video so interesting. You know, the, the moment that you were just referencing where she says, look for patterns. Right before that, she says, so what you do is you gather as much information as you can without being concerned about the source right? Just keep gathering yeah. information and don't look at the source and don't, don't be critical about it. Just gather it all together and then look at all of it and find the patterns and the patterns will tell you the truth. And it's just like, wow, that's a, that's a very interesting epistemology you have there. It's interesting too, because, because of the fact that she invoked big tobacco. And so yeah. if you want to look at the doctors that they hired to say that tobacco are healthy, are you going to just not look at the source in that context? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. So you have that's to, why. you have to look at the source. You can't not look at the source. I, and again, that's why I said that part of her exercise makes sense in terms of yeah. you do want to gather a lot of data, but, but taking, taking out the source and the intention, especially, like I said, we know what the intentions are. And if the, the intention is to bring down a government and a democracy, then you have, to, you have to factor that in as well. So her math is a little bit off in that video. No, absolutely. And it's part of a, an issue that I've, that I've always seen in our subculture, which is this, this sort of well-meaning relativism around what it means to be open-minded where you know you you basically end up including a lot of misinformation and nonsense and you know just made up stuff and 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 you say let's contrast this with the science and the truth will be somewhere in the middle between absolute fabricated nonsense and stuff that's based on evidence and that that just doesn't get you anywhere good <laughs> well i always go back to the fact that this this whole child trafficking and all these all a lot of the issues stem from me. I mean, it's, it's uh, continual throughout time, but one of the more recent examples is how the fundamentalist Christians were able to take creationism and through a concerted marketing effort, make Absolutely. it a debate with evolutionary biology. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So creationism versus evolution, climate science versus climate denial, all of these, somehow the Overton window gets moved so yeah. that, the, oh, well, there's, there's valid positions on both sides. It's like, actually, on some topics, there aren't. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, I know you've been watching the series as well, Derek. I, I watched another episode of the, the really quite good Netflix docuseries, Unwell. And the episode I watched was about Tantra. I thought it was really quite well done. It's a good series. Uh, this episode, I know you've seen it as well. I thought of it as sort of equal parts, three things. So the first is the sort of cultural appropriation critique 
from an academic religious scholar, and I'm not going to name everyone because I would have to name everyone then, so I'll just name no one, but this uh, academic religious scholar who's, who's basically saying there's a, there's a key distinction we need to make between this 1,500-year-old tradition, roughly, of quite wild and dark supernaturalism. He, he, also, he talks about it as having its origins, Tantra, in a kind of demonology uh, in, in the archaic past and the more shiny, sexy branding of modern Western neo-tantra. So that's one piece. Uh, the, the other part I feel they weave in is this really quite sympathetic treatment of three different neo-tantra teachers. And I see them as really doing a kind of mind-body emotional healing work that, that seems quite sincere and beneficial. And, and there doesn't seem to be, you know, there are no like big red flags in any of that, uh, with maybe with the exception of some sort of uh, very charismatic leadership that potentially could be a little tricky. And third, there's, of course, the cautionary tale about how communities organized around sacred sexuality can be fertile territory for a re-traumatizing abuse of power, especially when there's a hierarchical power structure and maybe, and this is really interesting, a set of mystifying beliefs and jargon that redefines the act of sex and renames, you know, the different acts and the sexual organs and these sorts of things, the rituals that are being enacted in a way that can potentially be kind of manipulative and confusing and make, make boundary violations seem sort of, I don't know, sacred or spiritual or, or like healing moments when actually they aren't. Um, and as you know, I often think about the gap between Western ideas of what certain Eastern practices are about and then their actual roots on the other hand. For example, the real beliefs and practices of this vast subject called yoga are often whitewashed or turned into something more congruent with the lovely and relaxing burbling hot tubs of Esalen and the pristine yoga rooms, essential oil-infused lobby sales floors, and energy-healing alcoves of American boutique studios. We want something that's going to fit nicely with that sort of sales model. Uh, for example, one thing that most yogis don't know is that asana practice itself most likely originates in outcast tantric groups, not in the more orthodox, dualist, aristocratic, Brahmanical sects that would later appropriate it and sort of, in their way, Photoshop it as being based on the metaphysics of Patanjali, who really just wrote about concentration meditation. Uh, most woke New Agers are also unfamiliar with the actually quite explicit links between the doctrines of reincarnation and karma and the legacy of the traditional apartheid-like caste system of theocratic oppression in India that predates the British Empire and in some ways still continues today. And Tantra itself, far from being the Western body positive embrace of sex as sacred, which I'm all for, by the way, and sacred sex as a way to work on healing and happiness, actually has much more terrifying and perhaps grotesque underpinnings. Like a lot of early myth and ritual, there's a deep preoccupation in the yoga tradition with death. And many ancient sects were seeking to attain immortality and then claiming to be able to teach you how to be immortal. Some work on this immortality project by retaining their semen 
and believing they can literally drive it up into their brains where it becomes the amrita, a kind of nectar of the gods that can then be drunk by learning to insert one's own tongue up the back of their throat. But of course, first you have to cut right here the frenulum underneath your tongue that attaches it to your mouth in order to be able to get it up the back of your throat. So this is like some pretty, you know, bizarre, arcane stuff and, and not to so be an engineering all. problem. Yeah, there is an engineering why, problem. There. That was the way there, why, why would we build better? <laughs> <laughs> and not to be in any way like culturally superior. I think that all human cultures have their roots in all kinds of, you know, stuff that is just arcane and superstitious and, and wild. And, and there is this sort of primal preoccupation with blood ritual, with sacrifice, with how to overcome death, with how to make sense of all of these sort of core existential conflicts. Now, many non-tantric yogis are sadhus, and they're devoted to a particular path of yoga. So the sadhu is someone who essentially leaves ordinary society and just sets out on the path of realization. So they're devoted to a singular path of yoga. They'll perform ritual practices, for example, that break the nerves in their penis so as to actually quell their sexual desires. They see their lives as a practice in what, they, what is called mortification of the flesh or proving to God that they care nothing for their bodies and only for the eternal soul or Atman that will merge with the divine when they step off the desire-driven wheel of reincarnation. So that's sort of the, the dualistic angle, right? Spirit versus flesh. You've got to be on the side of spirit if, if, if you want to transcend the flesh. The flesh is ultimately uh, profane, dirty, something to be disconnected from. But for the tantric sadhus, there's more of a non-dual formulation. But I, as someone who really kind of romanticized non-dualism and Tantra before I knew more, didn't realize quite like the, the details of where some of, some of these particular sadhus go. They renounce the world as well and live in the forest or in caves. One of the things they're well known for is meditating whilst sitting on top of dead bodies. They, like other sadhus, rub the ashes of dead bodies gathered from the funeral pyres all over their own skin. This is fa fairly, fairly common. And then some tantric sadhus, who are admittedly a, a minority, called the agori, will even eat feces, drink urine, and cannibalize corpses. You did hear me correctly. Cannibalize corpses as part of how they show their faith that all the universe is infused with divinity. So we're a long way from the hot tubs at Esalen, folks. <laughs> I will include uh, in the show notes a link to a fascinating and, and quite funny moment. Um, if you know Reza Aslan, so I'm, I'm very familiar with Reza Aslan's work. I don't know if you know him, Derek, or if, or if uh, listeners sure, I've will. read his books. Yeah, yeah, actually, I would, I would imagine you would. So Reza Aslan is a religious scholar. Um, and, and a bit of a public figure, plenty of, of talks you can find and debates you can find of him on YouTube. And in this CNN series, he did the CNN series that was really about seeking to understand the world's religions and, and practices and mystical experiences. And so there's this clip that I found on YouTube, uh, just a little snippet of one of these episodes where he's sitting on the beach with a bona fide Agori Sadhu. And... <laughs> 
and he's wearing, you know, he's got like a blanket wrapped around him. He's got the forehead streak. He's really, he's really thoughtful, mild mannered, like beautiful guy. And he's sitting there and the sadhu is trying to get him to eat uh, something. We can't tell if it's little pieces of human flesh or if it's flesh from some other kind of beast. And then Reza Hassan is just kind of looking at it. And then the sadhu is trying to get him to wear this garland on his head. He actually puts it on his head. And Aslan is just so, so horrified and disgusted because it's this garland made out of body parts. You know, you can see like a gum with teeth in it. And, and you can't, again, you can't tell if it's human or beast. And he, he eventually takes it off. And um, at, at the sadhu is talking to him through a translator. So this very kind of westernized looking, you know, nicely dressed Indian guy is sitting a few feet behind the ceremonial circle translating what the sadhu is saying. And at one point the sadhu yells at him and the, and the, uh, the translator says, he says he's going to cut your head off if you don't stop talking. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is horrifying, right? So Reza Aslan, his eyes get really wide and he calls the director over. The director comes over, you know, like he's also the cameraman, I think. And Reza Aslan says, can you distract him and I will sneak away. I'll be very polite about it. <laughs> and the director says, no, let's just see what happens. <laughs> and then what happens next is wild, but I'll, I'll leave that for anyone who wants to watch the video. But yeah, the, the, the tantrics and especially the agori um, and sadhus in general and the, the, the sort of path of renouncing the world and what that means in terms of the roots of yoga practice, uh, very, very different from our interpretation. And I don't have like a hardline position about, I, I'm not a Puritan with regard to yoga at all. I think it can evolve. I think there's a cross-cultural conversation happening, but I also think it's good to know about these distinctions. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, episode of Anthony Bourdain's show where he goes into the Congo and he says it was the most harrowing because the, even just getting the film crew into the river and there, like sometimes it understanding that the rest of the world isn't like the west side of Los Angeles <laughs> in terms of their yoga practice. It really takes it takes a lot of work. Uh, sometimes, um, especially when you're dealing with these, uh, when you're when you're looking back at texts that were written thousands of years ago, and you're imagining applying the lifestyle that we live today, but then pushing it back three thousand years ago, the, this romanization that happens, all of these practices are rooted in, in, in these sorts of uh, um, experiments with the body and also just understanding the cultural conditions. Like, uh, like you said in the show notes with Tantra, it came from the lower caste because they thought that the Brahmanic um, you know, way that yoga was presented, it, they couldn't touch it. They, it, was, it was not for them and they wanted a sort of yoga that was for them. So they created rituals that were much closer to home and that they could make sense of. And then how you get from that to, and I'm the same as with you about sex. I mean, there are many ways in, of doing it. And if it's something that's sacred to you, that's all awesome. But when you're selling sex workshops as a way to liberation through the lens of yoga, it's sort of problematic. 
just in terms of, of the mere presentation of it. And it's not even the practice of it. If that again, like you said with the unwell, I think it is an excellent episode. Um, here's here's what I was wondering, and I wanted to ask you about that episode. You have this couple that goes through profound healing with that teacher that you mentioned. And it was really moving watching him because this guy is very overweight and he always has these long-standing body issues. Now, my question is, if that was filmed six months ago, where is he now? Yeah. Like, yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. Um, and, and that kind of follow-up is something that would be really good. I mean, it's part of why it's so moving is because he is a, he's a sexual abuse survivor um, he is, he knows that this has always interfered with his, with his body image and with his self-love and with his ability to relate to his, his wife and I, I assume previous partners, uh, sexually. And I, for me, as, as someone who's sort of been immersed in the whole realm of like mind, body, awareness, somatic psychology, trauma work, how that intersects with yoga and things like massage, I found it to be to be a pretty legit process. The question would always be, and again, that's just my subjective opinion. I think your question is a good one. To what extent is there follow up and integration, and is 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 there a is there a way that he's being well cared for, and that the whatever happened in those sessions then shows up in his life in in ways that are truly beneficial. Or is he just being sold on a big experience, right? Yeah, well, that's a big difference between, say, the ayahuasca episode and the tantra episode Mm -hmm. is that the ayahuasca actually shows you some of the fallout with the woman who had a seizure during the the experiment, uh, during the um, ritual. And she was very, it was profoundly life-changing. And then all of a sudden she had this terrible experience. And she's like, Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder if, you know, the other experiences were either valid. And the, the one shortcoming of this, I've watched three episodes so far, but of this particular episode was the fact that there was no follow-up. So you leave feeling that he is cured. Yes. Now, one thing that, you know, I, I've many people have come to me over the years who first found yoga through me or through Equinox, or, you know, I was one of their first teachers and a week or two in, they're like, this is life-changing. I am dedicating my life to this. And I would, my response was always the same. That's awesome to hear. Come back to me in six months and say the same thing. And I wasn't trying to be negative, but I was just trying to get them ready for the fact that this is a path. And of course, in the beginning, everything always feels good. Now, I think about the differences. Like I come from an athletic background. And so my my take on yoga is, is very playful. It's very experimental, but it's also based on a certain set of performance of being able to get to these poses and to do them in whatever capacity you can in your body. It's not about the photo of it, but just being able to challenge yourself. Whereas your, your classes, Joanne, uh, there's always, I've, I've said this on previous episodes, there's always this sense of release and relief. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how Tantra has influenced you personally and how you are as a movement instructor. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it has. I think there's a there's a a set of overlapping influences that have to do with like, you know, early somatic psychology and and the idea of you know Wilhelm Reich's idea that we had body armor that that was sort of like physical tension that was related to whatever unresolved emotions or experiences we were carrying. 
Uh, that was a big influence on me. Stuff I got from Anna was a big influence. Um, the, there, the, this, is, this is tricky to talk about, but there is a, there's a set of really fascinating and compelling experiences that most people talk about in terms of energy. And I used to talk about in terms of energy, and I don't so much anymore because I think there are ways of talking about it without making up a whole new category of, of you know, reality um, that, are, that are just very profound and they can be very emotionally healing and, and, and ecstatic. And they do have to do with release that happens through your body, through breath, uh, through staying with what you're feeling in terms of both uh, sensations of tension as well as emotions that might arise. I've always sort of been fascinated with yoga as a, as a sacred space within which some of that could happen. And I think over time, as I've matured and as the work that I'm doing has evolved, I emphasize that less because I feel like there are certain places that people need to go that are better done in a, in a one-on-one setting. But yeah, certainly it certainly had an influence on me. Um, but you know, it's like, ecstatic dance, body work, early somatic psychology, and then later somatic psychology. I feel like all of these things, I was seeing the stuff that I relate to in, in the, the glimpses that they gave into those tantric uh, practitioners healing sessions. And I, I relate to it. And one thing that's come up, I said before we started film, uh, recording that uh, Tantra is not my specialty. I have read Fear Stain's work and um, mm. uh, Zimmer, Heinrich Zimmer's work on it. So I, I do have some foundation in yeah. the, the general overview, but I, the marketing stuff has never appealed to me. But the, you know, obviously with the Agoris and, and with down to the roots, I mean, it's always this balance of forces with Shiva and Shakti. And I feel like sometimes the way that yoga is marketed in general is always striving for the light. And they yeah. only talk about the dark in terms of traumatic experiences, which is mm. valid. And there is that mm. sense of healing. But I wonder, especially when you talk about these taking the funeral ashes and putting it on your body as part of the practice, this, this real immediate recognition that we're going to die and that yeah. this is the process. What in your estimation are we missing from Tantra and the way that it's presented in general in America? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I think, I think if you'd asked me that question like 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said they are sort of trying to relate directly to the shadow, right? I would have had sort of a Jungian perspective on it that you see, you know, what's, what's missing in more Western religious formulations is that the shadow is relegated to being like, you know, the devil and, and it's just bad. Whereas if you look at Tibetan and Hindu iconography, you see all of these deities who are super intense and wrathful and, and dark and lustful and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, uh, uh, murderous. It's, uh, I think when I was younger, that appealed to me as seeming to be like a more integrated approach of sort of facing your demons. And I love the, I love the quote from our dear friend, uh, Joseph Campbell, where he says, any demon is just a God who has not been honored yet. There's something there that's always, you know, spoken to me in terms of a, of a psychological orientation of, of doing the shadow work. But I think it's a, it's a lot less 
sort of neatly packaged for me now. Yeah, is it the Dharmapalas that protect the Buddha? Is that their name? I, I should remember this. Um, the Dhammapalas, it might be, it might be something else. So somebody can call me yeah, out on that. I but the, basically the Buddha in a lot of representations is protected by two demons. And these demons are cannibalistic, you know, they're murderous, mm. but they protect the Buddha while he's in meditation. So no one can bother him. Uh, and, and again, that, that balance of forces, I think, and this is personal just from my own feelings on this, but that if you don't not only face your shadow, but also actively work with it, then it's kind of hard to find something that's truly healing. I've always had the criticism of, of some people, and I've expressed this to some close friends of mine. I'm like, when are you done healing? Because I've known mm. you for a decade and you're always healing. So yeah. when are you actually done? I mean, and, and on some levels, of course, we're, we're, we're always working through things. It's not, that's not the criticism. But this idea that you're constantly in a process of healing, it's like, okay, so when are you actually good? Yeah, no, I got, honestly, and, and I've shared some of, my, some of my more harrowing stories on this podcast I got to be like 31, 32, and that was my active meditation every day was, was basically me saying, I want my life back. I don't, I don't want to be in this endless process of like every day, mindfully examining all the different ways that I, that I need to heal or come out of denial or face these deep feelings and not avoid them. And, and that can be, it can be a real trap. Now, you mentioned energy before, and I, again, I'm going to go back real quick about our own teaching styles. Like my, I've always been very exacting. So my philosophy of teaching asana was you can go for your higher spirit or whatever that is, but if your knee is bending inside of your foot, you're going to get a meniscal injury. So I'm going to take care of that first. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that's taken care of, and then we can talk about the other things. And so alignment coming from a lot of Anusara studies, like that was very important to me. Um, but that I also like classes that are more ambiguous that allow for exploration. And I've taken those before. And I would say that you, you have some of that because your instruction is just is much more personal in terms of that explore, exploratory element. And I'm just wondering if you could touch upon some of the real healing, a uh, therapeutic uh, modules that have happened in your classes from your students. Well, let me, let me back up a moment first to the first thing you were saying and just share that, you know, when I studied with Anna Forrest, she was incredibly, incredibly precise and exacting in terms of how she taught, but it was her own set of innovations. And there were several things that she did that once I, once I started stepping outside of the bubble and talking to people who were studying with Chakanmati, for example, and who had more of maybe an Iyengar background um, and Ashtanga, they were like, Anna, you can always tell the Anna students because they're doing things like letting their heads hang to the side and triangle like they've been shot in the neck with a tranquilizer dart. Like, what the hell's going on? And they're always doing that intense tucking of the tailbone, you know. So that was interesting. And then I, I got really deeply into studying anatomy. And I had a, a, um, a colleague named Ellen Heed, who I taught a bunch of workshops with for about 10 years. And we went around the country a bit and we, talked, we taught a lot in LA at different studios. So we would go to studios who knew nothing about forest yoga. 
And, uh, and that, that was the time when Anusara was becoming really popular. And we would come across people who were very, very uh, loyal to Anusara. And they would, they would come up to us after class and they would say, we need to talk. <laughs> like you're doing this thing with your shoulder and we learned that you're going to injure yourself if you do that thing. You have to do it this way. You're doing this thing with your pelvis in these postures. You're doing this thing with your low back while you're doing core work. And it was on and on and on. You're doing this with your, with your um, foot. Like it was endless. And it was a really powerful moment for me. And I talk about this always when I, when I do teacher trainings, because I realized that there wasn't just one way to do any particular pose and that there were ways to focus on specific technical aspects of poses that would be very beneficial for a certain group of people that would maybe do nothing to other people and to a third group might be problematic. It might, it might uh, exacerbate or, or perpetuate some imbalance that they had. And there was an opposite way of doing it that would have the opposite effect. He said, swishing his pee thing aside. <laughs> there, was a, there was an opposite way of doing it that would have a completely opposite effect. And it, I realized that the, the group in the middle was by far the biggest group. They could do it either way and they'd be fine. What was important was that they were in their bodies. They weren't doing anything, you know, obviously injurious and they were having an experience. And that was much more interesting to me. But I did continue with my studies of anatomy. I, I keep meaning to ask you if you're familiar with, uh, with functional range conditioning because that's something I've gotten really into. In, uh, uh, I, uh, somebody else, my, a friend of mine who teaches a sort of somatic-based class told me about it, but I don't know much about it. It's, it's super technical, like joint biomechanic stuff. And I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with it. So yeah, I, 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 I play around in the different zones and I'm always interested in what I can integrate. But as you've said, I'm less interested in being technically exacting than I am in inviting people into an in-the-body experience and seeing where it goes. And, and to, your, to your main question, I mean, there's, there's so much over the years. I think that I think that for, for anyone who has been sort of disconnected from their bodies, either because of trauma or because of some sort of adaptive response to life of just being much more in their heads, not, not as much in touch with embodiment, not as much in touch with their emotional intelligence, having the space to explore what it's like to just stay open and kind and curious in a mindful way about what's happening in your inner world, that to me is, is really sacred and has been golden. And I've, and I've, you know, the thing, the thing with my classes is that some people come once and are just like, this shit is crazy. I'm never coming back again. <laughs> or this is just not, this is not yoga. This is not what I was expecting. And that's fine. But the people who come and really connect with it right away, they stick around for, for 10 years, 20 years, 25 years. It's just we're, we're in this sort of community together where this is the work we're doing and it's, it's open-ended enough that it's not, you know, there's nothing sort of uh, um, dogmatic about it. But we, we do, I think there is the sense that the inner life is, is worth exploring and using the yoga space to drop into that and 
Sometimes it's about emotions coming up. Sometimes it's just about feeling good in your body, maybe for the first time that week. Yeah, well, I've also said this before. One thing I always appreciated was having practiced so much at Jiva Mukti where everything in the class filters to the shrine and the teacher in the front. Your class has no center. And that mm-hmm. is very powerful because mm-hmm. it's just, everyone has their ability to have their own experience at that point without having to focus all the energy in one place. And I think that's a much more powerful way to go. Uh, my friend Tara Stiles also has that. I mean, every a little bit different, but like she's never demoing, barely ever. Like the, the class is, the, it's a circle essentially in, that, in terms yeah. of that. Yeah, um, I got that. I got that. I, I have to give him props. I, I first saw someone doing that in the form of Max Strom. And I feel like part of why he did that is because he's like a six foot five, you know, big, long haired guy. And just to have his imposing presence at the front of the room the whole time, you couldn't help but just be focused on him. And so he had this very gentle way of moving around the space and speaking from the back of the room, you know, which some now, nowadays, some trauma informed folks will tell you that's terrible. You should never do that. You know, people can't tell where you are and it's going to trigger them. But I actually think it's a, it's a, it's a decentering of the role of the, of the guru who that you're, who you're focusing on and much more about being in the shared space. Uh, I asked you this on Slack and I, I do want to bring it up because I think it does, uh, yeah. there's some crossover here is have you watched the ESP Nexium documentary yet? The first two episodes at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm like halfway through the second episode. I'm watching it with my wife and we're, we're just compelled as fuck by it. And I have to tell you, if I knew about that organization when they were getting started, I would have been in. Absolutely yeah. in. Yeah. Like it just, like Alexis keeps saying to me, if we didn't know that this was going somewhere bad, as we're listening to the process mm-hmm. of getting involved with it, it sounds fantastic. What I love about it, and my, my wife and I talked about this after watching the second episode, is, but especially after the first, is the way that the documentary is being released shows you the indoctrination process. Exactly. Because the first episode until the last minute, you're on board. You're like, oh, this is everything. This is wonderful in so many ways. And you're hearing these. It's a really well done documentary. But I I especially thought of you because uh, the What the Bleep guy is South African. So talking about apartheid and living through that and how he processed it was pretty interesting. Totally. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I would never have guessed that about him either, either in the documentary until he said it or from, from the past and from watching uh, what the bleep, uh, you know, it, it reminds me in that way of Holy Hell. I don't know if you watched Holy Hell, but it's, uh, it's no. the CNN, CNN did this documentary about a particular cult. And I actually have a, a longtime student and friend who doesn't live here anymore, who was involved with this cult. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting. I don't even know if it had a name. It probably did have a name, but it's very similar. It's an excellent documentary that I highly recommend called Holy Hell because they filmed everything in the, in the group, in the community, and they did all sorts of amazing intellectual and artistic projects together. And they're beautiful, smart, happy people. And so you have all of this footage showing what was so amazing about this group that you get to interact with, as you're saying, see the indoctrination process before you see what, what goes so horribly wrong. It's worth looking at. Um, something that you said earlier about 
you know, just the questioning of like, okay, this guy had a great healing experience on the, on the table with, with this Tantra healer. Um, and then wondering like, okay, how, how does that get integrated? Like, how is he now? Where does that go? I think that's very interesting. And I think in, in both what we've been talking about last week with psychedelics and in talking about Tantra this week, and in talking about some of the stuff that you've been asking me about my approach, there's this, this very tricky area, which is that powerful experiences can often, and, and I talked about this, I wrote, I wrote a longer article from Medium that's like, like an expansion on what I talked about in my, in my closer last week. We're kind of in a culture where what sells is the big experience, right? And what sells about the big experience is like, this is going to be unlike anything else you've ever experienced. It's going to be better than therapy. It's going to be something that science doesn't understand. It's going to be the next level of your yoga practice, right? And it's going to take you to this place where a kind of radical, almost instantaneous healing is possible. And I'm, I'm sort of I'm giving the exaggerated version of it, you know, for, for, for effect. I know that not everyone talks about these things this way, but there is kind of that hunger, right, for the, the big breakthrough experience, whether it's, uh, whether it's getting to hug Amachi or it's having the energetic blowout on the, on the tantric uh, with the tantric healer or on the massage table or doing something like holotropic breath work or it's the big psychedelic experience, or it's going and spending, uh, spending three days getting sleep deprived and getting indoctrinated into like one of the landmark um, you know, seminars. All of these things are about the big breakthrough. And then supposedly you're healed or your life has changed, right? You're totally transformed. You have a new way of looking at everything because of this very valuable experience. And I think that that's very tricky and it leads me, um, it leads me to the story that I wanted to share today, which is about someone I was friends with. We, we, we had been super close, uh, probably going back to around 2010. And then for many years, we hadn't really in interacted much, uh, named Psalm Isadora. And I don't, I don't know if you know Psalm. Did you intersect with her at all? I know of her because uh, for listeners who don't know, Julie and I ran a website in 2012 called Yoga Brains. And one of our, I know from her and Sham, one of the other guys we were working with uh, knew her. So that's the, the extent of what I know of her. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll never forget the day that I met Sal Isadora. She floated into the yoga and raw food hangout. I don't know if you ever went there, Raw Revolution, uh, on Santa Monica's Main Street. She was all dirty, bare feet, but of course, painted toes in a floral print summer dress. And she flashed these luminous green eyes directly at me. For months, people who knew us both had been telling me I really should meet this woman with the unlikely name Psalm, like biblical, Isadora, like the famous dance teacher, right? This yoga teacher who was all about emotions and healing and sacred sexuality and dance and self-expression right up my alley. Within 15 minutes of sharing a couch and some superfood soup in the crowded hipster restaurant, she had her head in my lap, eyes closed and ready for a nap as I stroked this brand new head. I remember another time early on in my knowing of her when we went for a walk to grab some lunch and she said to me, People want me to teach them Tantra because they think it will make their life better. 
They want better orgasms, more intimate relationships. They think it can help them be rich and happy, but Tantra wants to cut off your head. And this was one of those conversations that made me decide to keep my distance, as compelling as those flashing green eyes were. Psalm was very open about what a mess her life was. Her history of growing up in a fundamentalist Christian cult, that she and her family subsequently had to flee because it was discovered that her father had been molesting the little girls. He was the school principal who were Psalm's classmates and apparently her too. Her life when I met her was upside down as well. She had an estranged husband. Uh, she was overlapping with a new boyfriend. There were a string of men for whom it sounded like she was doing quite well-paid ritual sex work. But from the outside, she was an inspiring and charismatic teacher, incredibly smart and eloquent. And I think she really helped a lot of women with her self-styled tantric yoga teacher, sexual healer, women's empowerment curriculum, which was always injected with stories of her own authentic struggles, very compelling, of abuse and her healing journey. And this sort of goes to why I segued here now, Derek, because part of the story was I came, this is her speaking, I came from terrible trauma and dysfunction. And through the path of Tantra, I am now healed and empowered. It's very similar to the Anna story that I told uh, last time or the time before. And not only was it healing from sexual abuse trauma, but she was also bipolar. And Psalm seemed to be on and off her meds at different times. I don't know all the details of, of that part of her life, of her routines. Now, as you said, it turns out one of our mutual friends, Sham, had been in a relationship with Psalm some years before uh, before I met her, and Psalm may be confusing, and Sham, S-H-Y-A-M. In fact, at the time that he met her, he had just escaped a Hare Krishna breakaway cult. We, we can't have an episode without some conversation about a cult, in which he was perhaps being groomed as the future guru when he met her. And he was out in the real world for the first time in his life. He was a virgin. And he was finally free from his monastic vow of celibacy. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a wild story. There's actually, a, I'll put a link in the show notes. He has a three-part series on Elephant Journal talking about this sort of episode in his life where he went from being a, the, a, a boy with a monastic vow of celibacy in a, in a very cloistered cult in Hawaii. Actually, by the way, the same cult that uh, Tulsi Gabbard grew up in. They were... They were uh, contemporaries in that group. Interesting aside. Andy has, uh, and a, then, Andy has a book that you can buy. I'll link to that as yes. well. It tells the whole yes. story. Fascinating. Wet, wet hot uh, American yogi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in, in, as the story goes, Psalm takes him with her to India to meet her tantric guru. And Sham would later write an article about how even though there was indeed this laudable project that, that Psalm was really sort of, you know, praised for in, in our broader community. Um, and she had made a film about this, that, that the group was helping sex trafficked young girls in India. What Sham discovered is that part of the work at this particular ashram turned out to be teaching girls as young as 13, 
how to include tantric rituals in their sex work with adult tourists. And this was, you know, very, very uh, uh, perplexing and, and disheartening and, you know, intense for him. And, you know, especially given his background to suddenly be thrust now into all of this kind of stuff. And so I heard over the years as they went by and I lost touch with Psalm that she was growing more influential and successful. She had a show on the Playboy channel. She got a lot of exposure and praise from some empowering public speaking appearances. And some whispered sort of unkindly about her getting cosmetic surgeries and really sexing up her image for mass appeal. But, you know, you can't knock someone's hustle if, if that's the direction she's going in and it's, it's getting success. Like, I, I didn't necessarily judge that. But then came a, a horrific shock when my friend Sham woke me up one morning with a phone call and said, this is so awful. Psalm has killed herself. He and I had another mutual friend who was a cop, and he confirmed that Psalm had hung herself with an extension cord in the stairwell of an apartment building close to where she lived. Turned out she was off her bipolar medicine, using alcohol and Xanax to cope, and that some of her well-meaning and worried friends and students were trying to do an unsupervised home cold turkey detox with her, which anyone listening who doesn't know this, never recommended, especially with uh, benzodiazepines, which Xanax is because it does not go well. You need to be very, very professionally supervised when you're coming off that stuff if you formed a dependency. And so this, I mean, just awful. Absolutely, I, I, I could feel it now. It raises so many questions about psychiatric diagnoses. And I know you and I have, we have some interesting stuff that we'll get into and discuss at some point because I want to learn from, from the work you've been doing, the research you've been doing looking into all of this. But it raises interesting questions about psychiatric diagnoses, uh, responsible use of medication, what really counts as healing from abuse trauma right? Is it the big experience? Is it, is it like opening up all your boundaries and just, just pushing past your traumatic associations with sex and having, having lots and lots of sort of boundaryless encounters, which, I, which you know, Sham talks about in his, in his article about their time at the ashram. And what happens to someone embroiled in a deep, dark inner struggle who has constructed a public identity as an empowered survivor, a beacon of light for victims of abuse, but who perhaps still was suffering so deeply from what had happened to her when she was a child. So that was a, that was a, a very powerful, I don't know, episode, uh, I, I think a, a powerful moment in the broader community or that, that she and I shared, the overlapping community. And I think a lot of those questions are still sort of largely unanswered. And a lot of people who really loved her and admired her refused to believe that it was a suicide. Um, so it was, yeah, just a, just a powerful and, and loose-ended kind of chaotic community moment. Yeah, we should link to the Delhi Beast article about that, which you were featured in as well um, yeah. a couple of years ago. It was very powerful. Uh, I want to 
take part of what you said really briefly, and then we'll get on to the interview with Alex Audaire, yeah. um, because I think it's worth pointing out, and we will go more into this because it's a big part of what my upcoming book is about. But to understand what something like a benzodiazepine, and I have uh, anecdotal, uh, you know, a history with this because I was on it for severe panic disorder. Um, how it goes through the FDA process sheds light on, on these substances and how they should be treated. Uh, in the clinical, in one of the clinical trials, so you need um, three to pass FDA approval or two and then one other sort of trial. Um, Xanax showed a 30% efficacy rate uh, in the trial, whereas the placebo showed in the same trial a 20% efficacy rate. So what that actually means is that compared to placebo and non-intervention, Xanax helped one out of 10 people, mm -hmm. right? So that, that's actually what it did. Now, here's the even more interesting part about it. That trial was 14, 12 or 14 weeks. They had uh, a, a, um, markers at four weeks, eight weeks, and at the end of the trial. At four weeks, Xanax was performing 10% better than placebo. At eight weeks they were even huh. at the end of the trial placebo was outperforming Xanax. So what the pharmaceutical company did was they scrapped the last eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever of that trial and only submitted the four week data to the FDA. These drugs are not to be played. These are some of the most powerful substance because they're actually affecting how your brain releases serotonin. Now, 95% of your serotonin in your body is produced in your gut. So the actual target neurotransmitters in your brain compared to the overall serotonin is very small, but it's, it affects the entire system, including the relationship between your brain, your nervous system, and your gut, which is the enteric nervous system. They're all related. And so this idea that you can go cold turkey off of it is first of all, it's preposterous, but more importantly, the pharmaceutical companies don't know how to taper off these drugs. They didn't have to figure that out to sell them. So there is no actual tapering protocol. There's a documentary called Medicating Normal, which I interviewed the producers a couple of months ago. And in that they show how different psychologists or psychiatrists who have tapering protocols, I mean, it's, it's crazy what they go through because they're just trying to figure it out. So if you are on these substances and you're trying to get off, please take caution and do not drink on them because that, when you told me that combination, now I know it's up in the air whether or not she committed suicide because there's something about her guru and everything. But if you are using that combination, the ide suicidal ideation is a consequence of that combination. Yep. And you have to be super careful about that. Yeah. And she was someone who had a history of that kind of ideation anyway, as well as a history of drug addiction from when she was younger. And so, yeah, I'm really interested in, in where we're going to go with, with that conversation in the future. And, and we don't have to have to get into it right now. I'll just say from my own experience, um, knowing several people over the years who have had a bipolar diagnosis it does seem that as imperfect as the, as the meds might be, uh, going off one's meds or trying to live without the meds 
and having bipolar and cycling into what can be very, very dangerous and disruptive manic phases um, does seem to be the worst of those two evils. Absolutely. And the, the biggest problem, and this is sort of the, the final point of the book, or one of the overarching points of the book, is that the chemical imbalance theory of depression and anxiety is a marketing tool by pharmaceutical companies to be able to sell them. I just recently covered a, a, a research paper by two physical anthropologists who talk about that if you want to actually understand depression, you have to take environment, genetics, family history, uh, socioeconomic conditions. Uh, so the the actual chem like the chemical imbalance is a correlation that is caused by environmental factors. It is very rare that it is a purely chemical. Now it can be with bipolar, for example, schizophrenia. Yeah. It can be, but for there are genetic markers. Yeah, there are genetic markers, and and but those in a lot of cases, those genetic markers are turned on and off by yeah. the environment and by your yeah. financial situation and by your relationship status. Like all of those things matter. So the idea that there's this one thing that controls your mental health is a fallacy. It's a completely made up in order to sell drugs. And you can very easily tell this because if you track the last, see Xanax is about almost 40 years old now. If you track from when Xanax came on and the tranquilizers before that, but if you track when Xanax came on, rates of anxiety and depression have skyrocketed, but so have prescriptions. So it, they're not working. If the prescriptions were working, the rates would drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty basic math in that sense. Yeah. And some of what you're saying about, you know, how they're manipulating the research and how they're marketing this stuff is, is really fucking awful. And it's interesting too, to hear you saying everything you were just saying about all the different factors, because I'm fascinated with pain science and, you know, pain science is this, this area that just keeps going through more and more. Uh, the, the paradigm just keeps shifting really rapidly. And, and something that I've heard people talk about lately that's fascinating is the bio psychosocial model of pain. So understanding that whatever, whatever the pain disorder is that someone might have, all of those different things are factors. And it sounds like you're saying something very similar about depression and other forms of, uh, of psychiatric sort of diagnosis. Well, there was some fascinating research done a number of years ago that showed that Advil helps with emotional pain. Yeah. So if yeah. you look at the opioid epidemic and then you compare it to what's going on with antidepressants mm -hmm. and benzodiazepines and antipsychotics right now, pain is, a, first of all, it's a neurological phenomenon, right? There are people who actually cannot feel pain. So if mm -hmm. you cut them, they could mm -hmm. bleed together without actually know they're bleeding. Yep. And so the, the, there are many ways of dealing with pain. There, there's plenty of instances where people used breathing techniques and meditation to get cut open in surgeries and they were, they did not feel the pain. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, none of this is medical advice. Everyone, you know, there are different situations where a lot of these substances are warranted and um, it's always important to know. And I don't know, Psalms, uh, I don't know her, uh, passed with this, but yeah. the best instance of any of these pharmaceuticals working to treat anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation is always in conjunction with psychotherapy. Yeah. So that model seems to work the best. Of course, 
doctors are not incentivized by insurance companies to provide psychotherapy, but they are incentivized to write scripts. And therein lies one of the biggest problems. Yeah. And I would actually extend what you just said to, to any of the stuff we're talking about, right? The, 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 the best outcomes for uh, psychedelic ceremonial psychedelic use, um, deep tantric healing experiences, uh, cathartic approaches to yoga, bodywork, ecstatic dance, whatever the thing is that's, that's getting you into some sort of process, best outcomes come when you also have good psychotherapeutic support or, or something really similar to that that's robust, that's consistent for you, right? Right. Well, that's a good, we might as well leave it on a slightly upbeat note because we're going to go to some comedy now and then we're going to go deeper again with Matthew. I had the great pleasure to sit down with Alex O'Dare where we were able to talk about how conspirituality is actually close to home for her. Uh, and also about the benefits and limits of comedy when it comes to keeping sane. Now, I've never actually met Alex in person, but uh, you know, 10 minutes on her IG feed always makes me feel like I'm just a little more equipped to deal with the world. Uh, if you go there, please check out her recent Ohm Drone skits. Uh, her premise is that for a price, a super swanky yoga teacher can send out a drone to spy on students while they're snacking or having sex, uh, and then she can give them better alignment cues for daily life. So obviously this is ideal for lockdown. Here's our interview. Yoga world, conspirituality has invaded. Uh, it feels like people are at home and there's this like distinct uptick in a side gig of kind of speculating on what's happening in the world. And so this entire podcast, as you know, we're spending all of these hours tracking this kind of tangle of conspiracism and new age fantasies. And are you seeing this in your own sort of circles? Are you seeing, I mean, I mean, you're yeah. in your Absolutely. family, it sounds like, but, yeah. but also in your broader yoga community. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I feel like, well, one, I'm never spending as much time online as I do for, the main reason is that the whole business is online. And I know right. I never answered your question about the yoga thing, but yeah, basically we shut down the brick and mortar pretty immediately. Our lease was up and we looked at the big picture. Uh, my husband really did first kind of before things were shut down and he was like, we've got to get rid of all the props. Like we can't use props. And I was like, that's crazy. I can't teach yoga without props, you know? And I, you know, and you probably remember yourself in March, but it was all happening very quickly. It's like, right. one day you didn't believe it was happening. And the next day you're like, this is happening, you know? Right. And right. So and then there was all kinds of bets hedged on how long it would happen for how long the transition to online classes uh, would, would, would last for and whether people's membership models could carry over to yeah, that yeah. and all of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and I would say that Nick, my husband, like really hit the nail on the head, and he was just like, "Let's, we got to end this and um, and go online." And he's a tech, he's an artist, a digital artist, and a filmmaker and tech person, so he had all the equipment. So right. it was fairly simple to switch over, stressful but simple. And we our lease was up, and we were just like, you know what, we're not going to try to hold on to this, like. I, we thought about it and we thought, you know, so for example, now as some amazingly, like there's a hot yoga studio in Philadelphia who still references Bikram amazingly. Um, 
and I, tr I sometimes, I refrain because I know someone who works there, I, I troll them a little bit. Um, <laughs> but um, Just a little, yeah, just, just a little. Come, come, come for the hot yoga, come for the, come for the culture of institutional abuse and stay for coronavirus. And I'm like, okay, fine, you like hot yoga, don't, what, you're still like, put Bikram in the fucking text, like, give me a break, like, that, it's so insane. But anyway, um, they, so they're opening up with 10, you know, minimum 10 people in person classes in a hot yoga studio masked. I mean, people are so crazy. Like, people want to do that. Apparently, there's people in the room doing that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's so crazy. But so, you know, I guess in my I guess they can't be I can't I mean, so that's, that's an interesting intersection, because, because the people who are sort of really gung-ho about the individual freedom aspect of getting back to work and getting back to the yoga studio and getting back to you know things as normal they that that often that group often intersects with the anti-mask crowd and who wants to wear a mask in 110 degree heat so i'm wondering whether that's like a trade-off internally it's like well i'm really going to get my I'm really going to get my hot yoga and I'll put up with a mask even though I don't believe in any of it or That's what I think. I well I think the hot yoga personality type mm. and you know I apologize very <laughs> very softly, very mildly to anyone who gets offended by this, but I've noticed yes, they tend to want to get that hot on mm -hmm. no matter what, you know. It's a certain personality type. So it doesn't surprise me that they're willing to go into a room with the heat on and a mask on. Right. I, I'm assuming someone's going to faint soon. Um, uh, but I agree with you. I think the no, it is interesting. And I do think that personality type coincides with the no, with the no mask type. And so I often think of this woman who I've now mentioned, she's probably once hopes I'm dead soon because I keep mentioning her by name, who I've known forever, who was an original Jiva Mukti yoga teacher named Jessica Bellafato. Okay. Teaches in the Hamptons, in East Hampton. And she does like paddleboard yoga and she's a beautiful young woman. Well, she's my age, but <laughs> I mean, no, she's a little younger than me. <laughs> and um, she is a very vocal, no masker, like, posting like she was the first person I noticed um, that posted the say no to Bill Gates and um, mm -hmm. sovereignty the hashtag oh um, right okay and so I was noticing that and looking at it, I was like huh interesting and started reading her stuff and that's when I noticed the sovereignty the say no to Bill Gates and other yoga teachers who, right some of whom I know and I started doing a really deep dive and I noticed you were getting, you were noticing it too. And I was sort of obsessively like reading these things. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you feel this, like you deal with it on such much more of a serious detailed level than I do, but I get like very angry, you know? I, I have, there's a whole gamut of stuff that I go through. I, I'm, I'm angry. I'm mystified. I'm demoralized. I get depressed. Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's a, there's a range. There's yeah. a roller coaster. And the main, the main thing that, that gets me, and that's my personal obsession. We all have our, our things, I think, is the, the libertarian, um, political aspect of it because mm -hmm. what i think is truly dense 
of these people is that they think of themselves as like progressive liberals in the wake up hashtag. Right. And it makes me absolutely nuts because they, I don't think they actually get or they don't care or they're too stupid to realize that their theories are, um, you know, what I say, you know, because they think the mask is, they don't use this word I do, is cucking you, you know, you're cucked, you're, you're in submission with the mask. Oh, well, they'll, they'll say, yeah, I mean, Kelly Brogan will say that the mask is uh, submission signaling. Exactly. Submission. I was really interested in that word. And what I say is that corporations have them cucked and their submission mingling to corporations because if you're that desperate, and I get being desperate to have the markets open because our system is so fucked up in America. Right. Um, So yes, we, we need work and we need to be able to make a living, but it's not the government's fault. It's the CEO. I mean, also is the, of course, with Trump, it's the government's fault. I mean, with many of our people, but what, what, the main issue is that the power is in the businesses and that the CEOs and the corporations hold all the power and it doesn't trickle down. Um, And this woman also is an MLM, you know, oil. So, so the, you know, the, the trickle down theory and the pyramid schemes are the same. It doesn't work. And um, so I just, I find it astounding that they're, you know, that they think, they're being cucked by the government when it's our whole system is cucked by this by the you know economic injustice. Well, it it really speaks to the to the weird fluidity around the word uh, around the concept of waking up because it's yeah. you just you just referenced it and and it it feels like uh, people aren't talking about insight into a particular politics. Uh, they're talking about developing. Um, they're t- they're talking about any kind of disruption in either their culture or in a worldview or in yeah. uh, their philosophy about their bodies that that gives some sort of excitement. Oh, this is something new. This is something that I can be on the inside of. This is something I can be smart about. Uh, but yeah, I mean, QAnon itself calls its its entire program the Great Awakening. And what are they yeah. awakening to except a paranoid fantasy of ethno-nationalism? Right. It's exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's so insane. And my even and my mother, who, you know, is one of those people basically who could, you know, who could have been maybe a Trumper, you know, but was a mm. Bernie person because my sister and I were like, this is the person you're going to do is Bernie, you know. And we were right. like, um, um, and I'm a very vocal. I was a very vocal Bernie Sanders, still am, but you know, where's that going? Nowhere. But um, right. So, but uh. Even my mother sends me these things about the protests, for example, in Berlin, when I say, you know, do you realize that you're in alignment with, you know, fascists, neo-Nazis, libertarians, in my opinion, as I always say, libertarian is the devil, you know, economic, economic conservatism slash, you know, social um, progressivism is really gross to me. Right, (laughs) right. you know, um, which is how I define a libertarian. But um, anyway, so then she sends me, no, you know, this is happening all over the world. Look at this. And then she sends me these protests in Berlin, which are like fucking Nazis are doing, you know, I mean, of course, people are going to, of course, there's going to be large swaths of people protesting to have stores open, you know, I mean, right. because everyone's suffering. Yeah. But um, 
he doesn't see that she doesn't see i don't know it's like it's very frustrating i i don't i i truly don't know like when i listened i i really liked the i think it was the first one you guys did and i was you know really listened to the different ideas behind it but it's still i still don't get why people like my mother I still don't really understand it. You know, it does. It confuses me. Well, okay. Well, given her, given her, given her age and yeah. her sort of cultural capital uh, over the years, and 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 you know, it seems like uh, as I go through as I go through your your Instagram, I can see you and your sister at, at, with yeah. you know both kissing your mom at at a at a fundraising yeah. event, and there's yeah. a very sort of like New York society feel to it, and I I think she's hyper networked and connected. Uh, is is not. Like, oh like, really? Well, on a small level, yes, but she actually is. You know, she's com she really has no money. It's so funny. I don't know. I didn't intend to like talk about my mother this whole podcast weekend, like, <laughs> but she she's not really. I mean, that was probably yeah. through my sister, the fundraiser. A couple of times she's invited somewhere because of the Warhol thing. And that's one of the issues that I agree with her on, that she's, you know, she feels somewhat exploited and has really no money, lives in like a small little thing in Palm Springs. And you know, paints all day. She's she actually is more of an outlier, like uh, fringe person. Right. Okay. Um, because these days, no one really cares that much about the Warhol scene, and you know, she's not. She never. She. But yes, you are correct in that. There's crossovers there. Right. And there was a period where she really was in the New York scene, connected like that for sure. And she was, right. she's a great writer and she was a journalist and she wrote for Vanity Fair and Village Voice and yes. And like, you know, we were friendly with some famous writers and artists and that kind of thing. So yeah, there's definitely truth to it, Matthew, but at this point she's not so much. Right. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the, the, the age or the generational relationship between her and somebody like Christiane Northrup, who is... Yeah. Yeah. Posting, who's posting all kinds of, uh, you know, conspirituality up to and including QAnon stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, but she does it with this kind of like chatty, I just came from cocktails. She makes jokes. She's very funny. Uh, yeah. She's warm. People want to be around her and like yeah. have tea or something like that. And yeah. so I'm wondering how much of a kind of, uh, I don't know, displaced need for grandmothers or for for, right. for matriarchs or something like that can even be translated into, oh yeah, I'll listen to talk, I'll listen to you talk about this stuff too. You're absolutely right. Because when you see the comments in Facebook, people are like, we love you, Viva, you know, we need you, you're a revolutionary, da, da, da. so uh, you're, you, that definitely did. Yeah. Hit me. And that's it. Right. And, then, and that's, and like all of us, you know, you get your serotonin hit from the, right. From yeah, it's less about, I mean, that's such, such weird, weird thing that it's always seems to be, or not always, but it often seems to be less about the content than the contact and, okay. and, and who, and who, and who one's contacting with. Yes, um, I think that's so true. And yeah. you, and, and I think, you know, the whole, the whole rugged individualism thing, it, uh, it makes sense to me. It makes total sense with the wellness industry, with someone like the Jessica character, um, rather than my mother. Like that, they would be no maskers because the entire, you know, which is what I, you know, in the past skewered more specifically, 
the the entire wellness industry industry is based on individualism and, and yeah your own bootstraps right so admit that makes sense right and the belief and the belief that uh, one is not only invulnerable but also pure and so i think what they like i think i said this in, yeah. in an early earlier episode but it seems that what the anti-masker is really saying is that because they don't understand mask science, that it's not, it's really just about a barrier so that your spit doesn't get on other people. That's all. Yeah. It's not yeah. going to, it's right. It's, it's, it's fabric. It's not going to stop the aerosols, but it is going to reduce spittle. And that's the point. But in order for the, the person who really believes in their invulnerability or their ultimate purity, they would have to, to understand that. They'd have to say, oh, I might be sick and not know it. Yeah. And and that's kind of that's like in that's intolerable. That's intolerable for some people. And it's and it goes all the way into, you know, you have to boost your your immune system and all this shit. Right. Which, you know, what I I go as far as to say that that is white supremacy because mm. it's the it's the same um dialogue that for example a woman who I often satire her name is like Lacey something or other and she's called to be magnetic and she's one of those you know manifestors and she's got a huge following and mm -hmm. it, a lot of it has to do with manifesting money oh um, and then okay. money, finances are fluid and that's a big thing in this world right is that your finances are fluid and in money is it's a scarcity mentality when you well, don't money is energy right money exactly. isn't money exactly money is energy and so as we know um black people are i think even as much as four times more susceptible to corona like it's right. two times as much but when you look at all the data it amps up yeah and there's many reasons which you know i'm no expert but one of one of the main reasons is systemic racism i mean that's the main reason and within systemic racism there's this um, issue with black bodies that the high levels of stress make you more susceptible totally. in general. It's a real thing. And it's so insane that someone like Jessica would not connect those dots. You know how they're always saying, my mom's always like, connect the dots, you know? Um, yeah, well, there's a, yeah, there's a very small selection of dots, really. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so and to say, to publicly say as like a beautiful white woman in the wellness industry that you can beat Corona by amping up your immune system is racist because people, even if, even if there was a, some truth to that, even if there was truth, which I'm sure there's a grain of truth to you, maybe some people can fight the virus off better. I mean, I'm saying like a mini tiny grain, right? If you have a certain kind of immune system, obviously some people are affected more than others. But I'm stating the obvious, I know you already know this, yeah. but obviously a huge swath of people don't have access to, to, yeah. to, 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 and to even food, right? There's food deserts in our right, country. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know, are there food deserts in Canada? Oh, there's definitely food deserts in yeah. Canada, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in, I, would say, I would say on the whole, our institutional resiliency and, and our economic uh, conservatism or lack of recklessness has been a little bit protective here. Yeah. Uh, and yeah.
Because you know so, we like to we like to uh, fetishize Canada, us 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 uh, democratic socialists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, some I would say that eighty percent of it is warranted, and then there's twenty uh, percent that is um, misdirected because we definitely have a lot to work on, and and yeah. and, and yeah. many of the same many of the same uh, you know colossal racism issues that that you have yeah. as well i mean the, the the border is pretty thin when it comes down to it and it's thin particularly with regard to the digital landscape yeah. uh, which is something i've talked about is like yeah it's very easy for for david wolf to you know project uh, videos into canada and then show up in calgary and go to an anti-mask rally so and yeah. i'm like get out of my country yeah get out of my country yeah totally um, crazy yeah 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 so, so let me talk, let me ask you about your comedy, okay? Because, okay. like, you have always skewered, like, this yeah. barely hidden alt-right politics of celebrity wellness. Yes. Uh, you have always dragged MLM influencers. Uh, you've always, like, done a number on yoga teachers who have turned into business coaches or spiritual coaches or yeah. yoga teachers affiliating for sweatshops or, you know, yeah. gu guru types. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're not surprised to see this yeah. rise in libertarian politics of, of wellness. No. Uh, you're, I don't think you're surprised to see BLM get ignored by a lot of big names. No. Um, but, you know, are you having to up your game in the same way that they are? Um, I don't think so. I mean, on some level, it feels, I feel that sort of like, vindicated feeling um and then and so i'm just like all right i'll sit back a little bit and let everyone work this shit out because there's a lot of i have noticed you know at least in my instagram feed right and i'm on instagram a lot because now that is how i'm on it you know i've had to mm. monetize myself with my instagram feeling and as as you know you know i had that new york times profile about it so i got a bunch of followers and I never sold anything on Instagram before. I never even posted a yoga picture ever in my life. Right. I just did my little thing at my brick and mortar and I often had like five people in class enjoyed it, but didn't make much money. Right. You know, and we're, but we're used to that. I've done that since I was in my early twenties, like my husband built out little yoga studios and that's how we, you know, and with mixed with his gig work and sometimes full-time jobs, depending on what he's doing, we made a living doing this, you know? Yeah. And, um, and obviously, you know, whatever, have some family, you know, stuff that helps at times, you know, I'm not trying to say we like do it all ourselves. Right. Ourselves. So, that said, we've cobbled together a life like that. So I'm very used to teaching small yoga class. I don't, I don't teach math. People are like, oh, you must have tons of people. I'm like, I really don't. Like I, my average right. amount of people in class was 10 people. So if I social distance with that, there's no way to even pay the rent. Yeah. But, so I'm on Instagram a lot now because I sell through Instagram. And honestly, I'm doing much better. Like the, oh, digital, okay. the, the shift is financially much more lucrative what and how about and how about and how about the comedy as well because yes, yes. So, all right so i so with the extra follower with the follower since new york times thing i people much prefer the comedy if i post a yoga thing my followers it's like you get whatever like so many likes not that many but if i post one of my videos then it's like the big deal you know it doesn't make money but <laughs> um but so right. i think what I noticed, what I, why I started saying this was that 
you know, everybody, my feed was full of, of BLM posts and like, we've got to do this work. And, you know, there was like, which is, I'm not putting down. I was glad to see that, but a lot of like, wow, I'm seeing how, you know, we're part of this system and especially during the height of the protests here in, in, um, in like Philadelphia, New York area, et cetera, around America. And lots of like shared, I'm sure you saw that too, like lists of how, you know, like how to help people get out of jail and these right. kind of things, which was all great and fine. Again, speaking to a bubble always in Instagram, you know what I mean? It's like suddenly every single person on Instagram is posting the same list, right? which I don't know, like that's a different subject, like to talk to if that's useful or not. Right, right, but, right. I was, I was pleased to see the awareness uh, coming up. And then what I exactly, I think what you're saying, what I would notice is that there was an incongruency. So like for, oh, I, I'm like loath to say this, but like, for example, I'm going to say a very, uh, somebody I know who's quite wealthy and does, uh, I'm not, not going to say her name, but basically writes, you know, political things on a piece of material. And um, I'm trying to be slightly vague about it. And um, okay. so for, you know, messages that are what might be called, you know, woke capitalism, you know? Oh, okay. Right. And um, I love how I love how you you sort of go to every example through this. I don't really want to. And I'm always sort of you to spit out the name anyway but it, like I'm wondering whether you're going to be able to restrain yourself but, but here it sounds like okay so we're just we've just got There's like woke capitalism I feel, I feel bad making fun of because she is truly a sweetheart uh-huh you know? right For other people I don't give a shit about like Jessica Bellavato and I'll and I'll say the name Elena Brower like 800 times now I used to refrain now I'm over it oh my god did you see that video uh, this is an aside just a gossip aside where she was talking about selling things you have to look at my highlights on my instagram page okay and go to where it says um i'll alert you to it but it's truly insane i, I did i think a, an academy award winning skewering of that she um, said, uh, it, it, the, but the but the premise was selling things. Oh my god! It's like a little talk that somebody sent me okay. that she did. I think with like this, you know. Okay. And I'm not. I can't even. She's she's talking about how selling isn't a dirty word, and she goes sell, sell, and it's woo! It's real crazy. Oh, and the whole point is that she's saying one day we'll get Tylenol and Advil out of the school systems and switch to oils. Oh my god! To little kids, it's really psychotic. Oh um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so woke capitalism. So then the minute Kamala Harris is announced, now look, don't go crazy, people listening. I'm going to fucking vote for Biden and Kamala. Mm -hmm. And, but of course, these type of people are like, yes, I'm crying with tears of joy and da 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 da. And I'm like, that's interesting because you literally just posted a black <laughs> clear and BLM stuff. And Kamala and defund the police and right exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So I'm like, if you understand what defund the police is, I don't right. think you should be posting. I'm crying with tears of joy about Kamala. That's fine. We have Kamala. Like I follow this thing that's like fine. Settle for Biden and Kamala. I get that she's more progressive than many people, but like the two posts next to each other are ridiculous. And that's uh, the it's this is this like 
they express but they express performance right performative virtue and virtue. Yeah. yeah and and uh and that's i the, i have i i can see all the difficulties with it obviously yeah. i can see the hypocrisies uh yeah. i can also see this yearning too for people to um belong and share and emote and and really connect their emotional yes, yes. Out, outflowings with with political events and i feel that too like yeah. like i i definitely notice when i get drawn into that and and we could talk like you know which i know you do like psychologically it's not necessarily all bad or all wrong to connect to a like-minded group right, right. over BLM, you know, like if a yeah. bunch of white people are going to be like, yeah, we want to fucking march for BLM, which I did. And I totally wholeheartedly believe in it and went to many marches um, and have always believed in it, you know, I mean, but there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But I but yes, I, I find that the disconnect with defund the police blm and systemic racism that to me is the exact product of neoliberalism is where what gets me is that right. then the same people will be promoting neoliberal policies right and there's something too about like uh, a narrow selection of dots that we can connect and I, I'm thinking of that beautiful cartoon that just showed up that compared data to information to wisdom to uh, conspiracy theory. And it was a series of dots and you could see that, you know, in what in data was just dots and information was a little connection and wisdom was a pathway. But then, <laughs> con, but then the conspiracy theory was like a connect the dots, you know, unicorn or something like that that was, that was made <laughs> out of the thing. And, and, I will send it to you, but yeah, this brings me, you know, okay. uh, I know, I know our time is short, but it brings me kind of my, to my last thing, which is okay. that you, you recently started an, an Instagram series in which there's some off-screen guru named Krishna G who's allowing you to use a surveillance device called the Ohm drone to yes. spy on uh, yoga students as they cheat on their spiritual diets or they screw up their postures or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's hilarious. We'll link to it, but it got me thinking uh, you were saying that your, you know, your mom just didn't respond to to data in return. Yes. Uh, and it seems that this is just the sort of social dynamic of the conspiracy theory that it's yeah. uh, super resistant to facts. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you think that some sort of ultimate weapon against QAnon could be the invention of a counter conspiracy? And wouldn't you be the <laughs> person to do it? Uh, yeah. Like. I'm thinking of that joke meme that that would trick anti-maskers into wearing masks by telling them, you know, you can wear masks, you won't be detected by the deep state. Uh, <laughs> but we, it's got to go farther than that. It's got to yes, have a hero. Yes. It has to have a journey. So I'm, yes, I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering if anything comes to mind, and whether whether maybe maybe uh, we both could cook up the counter conspiracy that would save the world. I like it. Um, I'm willing to. I'm willing to dabble and contemplate. I mean, my problem is I'm very lazy and have a very poor work ethic. So I, I, uh, <laughs> which I think some is one of the qualities of a democratic socialist, people think. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to focus in so intently on becoming the hero, you know, like, like I can't do the hard work of the, of the, 
of the hero personality. However, however, when you when you when you put that dollar sign on your forehead and you pick up yeah. those dolls, you mm. commit. I do commit. It's true. But but is it only for two minutes at a time? Is that the deal? Like yeah, it's for two minutes at a time. Um, it's true. I it is for two minutes at a time, and I. You know, I mean, I feel like I didn't answer your question about the humor and stuff and amping up the game, which has to do with what you're asking. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, right. And, um, and yeah, I guess what I feel like is the dolls, like while I could, I get such pleasure out of putting the sheepskin and the, I think the money symbol in lieu of the ohm is brilliant in my opinion. Right, <laughs> but, right. Uh, but um, it really says it all, you know? I don't think a lot of people, some do, but I think there's a lot who don't get really what I'm saying. You know, they just think it's funny and kooky. They're like right. crazy Alex. They don't actually see that maybe even I'm skewering them. You know, there's a lot of people like, I love your work. And then I look at something there and I'm like, that's interesting because you're at, you actually are this person. Um, and I'm like, huh. <laughs> that's cool. That's, isn't that like a little bit of projective identification, right? Yeah. It's like, it's yes. like, I, I really, I really love this. It couldn't be me. Yeah. I, no right. way. Um, and so, so, and so, and at this point, I feel like it's so obvious. It's like that I, that I sort of put that aside, you know, the sheepskin. Yeah. So like when I started doing the ohm yesterday, when I was doing a lot of the ohm drone videos, I didn't do any makeup or anything. Like, I feel like I've shifted characters now. And I think it is because of what you're saying. I think I'm trying to target, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, thought out in that way. Like the ohm drone came up because my good friend, we were like high and having a drink in my back porch. And she was telling me she's, she's recently divorced and living alone. And she told me that she had a bat in her bedroom and she called this guy called the bat guy, who's kind of hot. And he came in and fucking removed the bat. But do you know what he did? It's $300. He put a drone around the house to see whether, where there were like access and egress things. And if there were any colonies. And I was laughing so fucking hard. I was like, you got scammed, bitch. Like, like <laughs> that drone. And I gotta see shit with that drone. And, um, and when, with a little small amount of THC at two milligrams, I can really go in, you know? And I've been, so that's how I came up with the ohm drone. I was like, I was like, we could make a shit ton of fucking money if we said that in this virtual world, you know, we're not doing, and I would love it because I hate doing yoga privates. They're like the, they're, I would rather cut off my pinky finger than ever have to do another yoga private. And um, oh, the Ohm drone, the Ohm drone is coming in to check in on private yoga students as they're doing their Zoom classes. Is that the, the deal? Theory, no. So the theory is the Ohm drone follows you for a month at a time um, and goes into your bedroom and the bathroom and watches you in your natural habitat when you're doing just your regular movements, when you're like fucking, yelling at your kids, arguing, making coffee. Then the information sent to me, and it's many thousands of dollars if you want this and I analyze it. And then our private is like this, we get on Zoom and I tell you, Matthew, everything I've observed. So I'm like, Matthew, when you're shitting, um, it's, I've noticed you're not getting your knees up high enough when you wipe yourself. And there's actually shit getting smeared on the back rim of the toilet seat. No, 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 and but it has to be a health thing. It has to be about how it's not completely eliminated from my lower colon. Yes, yes. Because, because there's a little kink there. And if I <laughs> yes. it, it's quiet, it would be- Oh, I'm gonna steal that. A kink in the colon that I've noticed a kink in the colon. Right. Yes, Nico? 
Nimiko wants to know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to Matthew um, from Canada. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, okay. So all right. So so the so you've got the ohm drone, but but don't you think? Yeah. I mean, just visualize with me for a moment. Okay. It, okay. No dollar sign, okay. but okay. but a cue on the forehead. Yes. Okay. Like who would that? Like who? What would she say? I mean, yes, I mean, yes. I, to, because I haven't seen anybody. I've seen, I've seen memes mocking uh, the premises of the movement, but I haven't seen anybody do a send up of the actual, you know, in you know, intrusive eye contact or the yes, sermon yes. quality yes. or the or the urgency or the panic or the like like. You know, I've been crying all night because I was reading about I was reading about you know children trapped in the New York subway system or, oh, right? Oh my God! I, the the Jessica is also obsessed with the child like pedophilia ring and stuff. Um, right. Um, yes, I get what you're. I'm with you, Matthew. And I, when yeah. I just visualized that, you did. I did get a spark of an inspiration. Okay. And so something could be coming. Something might be coming. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I am not going to intervene anymore or okay. lean on you in any way. You're, a, you're, you're an artist. Uh, I leave, I, I leave you to it. And I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see how Ohm Drone develops and uh, how it how it helps defeat the deep state. Okay. I'm 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 appreciative of of these ideas. I should be taking notes. I'm going to take notes after I hang up. Okay. All right. It's really good to it's really good to talk to you, Alex. It's so good to talk to you. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it again. Let's do let's let's uh yeah, let's let's track this. Let's track the arc of uh, let's track the the arc of QAnon uh insanity along with comedic uh and political resistance. I love it. I love okay. it. And, all, and I realized you sent all those lovely questions. There was more that we never got to. But the one thing I want to say was that I really appreciated that you mentioned the um, penis drawings, the dick pics. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. We can talk about that another time. But we I will, to... Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah. And the question was yeah. basically, basically, um, you know, when when you make, uh, you know, uh, an avant-garde comedic statement like drawing fluorescent penises over sex predators in in yoga like yes. where do you go from there uh and <laughs> like is can you can, can you do that with trump or is it kind of just redundant you that know? was the question i liked right, let's, right, right. Let's, let's end on that and i will i do want to say that i will say that with trump i have a lot i i find that the trump obsession whilst i you know hate his fucking guts and you know would not give two cents if he croaked on the walkway right um, in front of the nation um the obsession i do like the woman who does the um the comedian who's oh, sarah famous. cooper right yes I, I do like that that's yeah. the that's the actually the one trump thing that i that i enjoy um i I, what you worded it in your question, which I don't have in front of me, right, but it's just like, it's too obvious. Like, and I do find the obsession with Trump for Americans in my social economic milieu is a bit indicative of the, I think it's a desire, an unconscious desire to like lay our hatred hooks into someone yep. that, they, that they don't quite see. And people, certain Democrats get mad when I say this, that the policies are not that different than what yeah. has been happening 
since you know Reagan, and yeah. it's very hard to say that. To not only not only that, but 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 Bloomberg's New York and De Blasio's New York is still Trump's oh, New York. My God, what about the people who actually right. wanted Bloomberg? I mean, right. That was fucking psychotic. I, th yeah. That was something that I would wake up steaming about. The, like the so-called liberals who were right. in, like contemplating Bloomberg. Okay. Right, right, right. Anyway, don't get me started. Yeah. So like the Trump, it's too obvious with Trump. I think I once, I think I have done some dick pics with Trump and um, Jared and Ivanka because I do find Jared worth adding a dick to his head. And um, <laughs> I, do, I think the dick pics are very like poignant and to the point and they say everything and i've drawn dick pics since i was a young child i was really into doing like little like mini porno comics i wasn't sexually abused that i know of but i did draw like very evocative sex porn comics as yeah. like from a young age um i think just from looking at like a lot of penthouse and playboy that were laying around the house you know right um, so I, so the, so I very much enjoy doing that. And, but Trump, yes, too obvious. Like it's, I find it much more poignant to do Eddie Stern, for example, you know? Right. Like yeah, the, the person, the person who's, the person who pretends that they are not a dick pic, right? Exactly. That's who you have to put the dick pic on. Exactly. Right, That's who right, right. This bit of storytelling is dropping while I'm off the grid for a week with the family on Manitoulin Island. The name means Spirit Island in Anishinaabe. We usually take our little white boys to the open powwow when we're there, but we hear that it's canceled this year because of COVID. The older one is supposed to study Ontario First Nations culture this year, and it looks like we're homeschooling for now because the neocon provincial government here has totally screwed up safety measures for school return. Uh, you know, we're extremely lucky that we can swim, swing homeschooling, but we won't stop fighting for public education. Maybe while we're up there, we'll see if the Anishinaabe Cultural Center is open. Uh, the boys really love it there. They've got drums and pelts and these big taxidermy bears and, you know, wolves. And there's an old woman uh, there who sits and weaves at a little table. So two weeks ago, I told a story about my former spiritual practice of mandala offering. I learned it in the cult of Michael Roach. I talked about how symbolically bringing together everything of value in the world was a rewarding ritual and how the sheer overwhelm of data and symbols brought together in the Q universe maybe we can say the, the Q-niverse, seems very much like that. And I talked about how that ritual, at least for me, also alluded to elements of my spiritual life that resonate with conspiracism, namely that nothing happens by accident, nothing is as it seems, and everything is connected. So today I, I wanted to share another ritual I learned during that time that I feel pertains to the conspirituality to QAnon arc, uh, but also to the, to the feeling spectrum involved. It's a little heavier. Uh, all of the trigger warnings apply. The mandala offering I described before is like elementary school and serves as one of the preliminaries to like I don't know, college level, but really like Hogwarts college level Tibetan Buddhist tantric practice. So I'll, I'll describe one of those practices. But before that, 
uh, I'll just say that with this story, I'll now be on record as appreciating two of the practices that were taught in an exploitative cult. And that's just the way it is. Not everything you learn in a cult is bad or bad for you. And like conspiracism itself, really effective cults must hook you with a certain degree of plausibility. They have to appeal to a need. And in Roach's case, he was really aided by an exploitative yet reasonably faithful connection to Tibetan ritual culture. And I do believe he loved and respected it. And this made him an effective communicator of it. So with the mandala offering and the tantric visualization I'm about to describe, I believe that Roach faithfully communicated something that carried psychocultural value because it carried a real history of usage. Now, the catalyst for this reflection is weird. At the recent Hollywood Save the Children rally, which is really a QAnon rally, but brand washed, uh, there was a woman carrying a very strange sign. And amazingly, she's a Zoomer, she's POC. Um, you know, QAnon has been associated with white replacement theory, and obviously, there's a lot of white supremacists in it, but these rallies are really defying those demographic expectations. Now, this woman's sign featured an elaborate painting, uh, I assume she'd done herself, of baby parts being cooked in a cauldron by the cabal, I guess, to render down the adrenochrome they drink to grant them eternal life. So the picture that we've got in the show notes uh, was taken by the reporter uh, Julian Field of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Um, and he did some great reporting. They all did some great reporting from that day. Uh, and in another bit, Field describes evangelical Christians going into full trance states at the protest uh, and busting out speaking in tongues. So for some, QAnon events are also spiritual events. So that sign stirred up some memories for me, believe it or not, of this spiritual practice I'm going to describe. Um, and I think the linkage is plausible. The cauldrons of babies that the woman has painted don't actually exist. So what does it refer to? Aside from the propaganda, I'm going to take it more seriously than it just being a meme. I'm going to speculate that it serves as a kind of meditation object. I'm going to imagine that it's allowing some people to do some of the work that spiritual practices are meant to do. So in 1997, I was initiated into the tantric practice of Vajra Yogini. My preceptor was Michael Roach's teacher, because at that point, Roach himself hadn't yet publicly taken it upon himself to give those initiations. So Geshe Losang Tarchan, uh, now deceased, uh, he presided over a small temple in Howell, New Jersey, and he had a legitimate background. Um, I really liked him. Um, I can't say that I connected with him at all. We were from completely different worlds and, you know, I never really got close to him. I did have one personal interview with him. Um, and I just, I liked him. I got a good feeling from him. He was one of the Dalai Lama's theology examiners back in Lhasa, uh, back before the Chinese invasion. So, you know, this is a real person, 
a real, a real, a real um, teacher. Now, another sort of caveat before I get into the actual practice is that when I was initiated, I took a vow to never disclose what I'll talk about here. The practice was meant to be secret. And the psychological explanation for it was straightforward. Like yakking about something really precious is like gossip. People will misunderstand it. Um, and maybe people will say that my reading of the ritual is a misunderstanding and that's exactly the reason for the vow. Um, but there's this fear that, that speaking about it will degrade its power and its dignity. Um, but there are other reasons for tantric secrecy, and I think those reasons are really important to consider when we're thinking about the supposed secrets that QAnon is, is revealing. In brief, the secrecy of tantric practices has in part to do with their sexual deviance, but also with the fact that at the most advanced levels, they involve breaking social taboos in ways that cross over into the criminal. Like most earnest QAnon devotees, tantric practitioners are meditating on chaos in order to digest and expunge it. There will be practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism who will say that by disclosing this stuff, I'm harming the culture and that I will be personally damned. So to that, I reply, I've already broken those vows. And in my calculation, the secrecy of these practices has contributed to a lot of institutional abuse over the years. Secrets conceal private, nameless, holy things, but they also hide abuse. And hiding abuse doesn't serve any culture. Okay, so here's what the practice was. And again, uh, all the trigger warnings. Six times per day, with one session consisting of a full hour-long visualization exercise, I meditated myself into the fantasy that I was a divine or enlightened 16-year-old woman or girl naked, sexually aroused, adorned with ritual elements and weapons, and dancing on the corpses of demons. I was encouraged to fully invest in the embodiment. My skin was crimson red, my gender was flipped, and I could actually dance, and, and that's a stretch. I wore a rosary of bloody skulls around my neck, 52 skulls for the 52 letters of the Sanskrit alphabet. The dance pad was in the center of, you guessed it from two episodes ago, a mandala or celestial palace. The mandala offering with the rice and the rings and the trinkets was all a preparation for this. So if you need to rewind that bit and listen to it again, feel free. Like this is straight out of the textbook. That's exactly what, um, I'm not making any of that up. And what was the point? This particular level of tantric practice was called in Tibetan kirim, which translates as the path of creation. And the idea was to fast track your understanding, but more importantly, your experience of enlightenment by literally LARPing your way into it. And the older students said as much, they said, fake it till you make it. So every aspect of the ritual was an effort to imagine yourself into a state of profound and ecstatic wisdom. And maybe this appealed to me because it didn't involve psychedelics, uh, at least not in that school. And the imagination was supposed to be sensual, and that was liberating for me at the time. The idea was that theorizing or studying or philosophizing your way to enlightenment and peak compassion was very slow and plodding. 
but perhaps forever complicated by the fact that you were using the very instrument of delusion, your conceptual mind, to do it. There was a particular feeling that I was supposed to generate through all of this. It was called divine pride. The idea was that as Vajrayogini, I felt myself to be infinitely compassionate, free, and enjoying the endless pleasures of enlightenment. I became the hero at the center of a great story. So the tantric world is quite gamified that way. And it gave me a lot of relief at certain moments many years ago. But the visualization did not stop with the dance. It escalated into a full-on sacrificial event centered on autophagy. That means eating yourself. So in my right hand, I visualized a ritual butcher's knife. And as the prayers came to their peak, I was to imagine chopping my fantasized body into pieces and throwing the pieces into a cauldron. Now, I never got clear on whether I was supposed to double myself while doing this because the body, you know, like how, how is the hand going to chop itself up or whatever? Is the hand just going to keep chopping even though it's disconnected from like, how is that going to work? So I don't know. I didn't get clear instruction on that. Maybe I screwed it up. Um, in any case, I suppose I was supposed to be doubled because once the body parts had been cooked down, uh, somebody, and I guess it was me, poured them out, poured out the nectar into the cup of my own skull, which I guess hadn't been thrown into the cauldron. And I was supposed to drink from that. And it was supposed to be nectar. So if you need to pause and rewind again, be my guest. Um, you know, it's not a joke to say that it took me several years to really grasp how intense and bizarre this all was. But then also to respect the fact that this surreal meditation had been faithfully preserved by an extremely scholastic culture. So here's my point. Um, my sense is that for some people, QAnon can be seen as providing a kind of distorted tantric ritualism. Devotees are obviously meditating on sex, death, sacrifice, and cannibalism. But those who are externally projecting these meditations, and, and I mean, let's be honest, you, you know you're projecting when you're at a march, they might be missing something key. It seems they think they're meditating about other people doing things and not about their own internal stuff. Now, if you remember my earlier piece on the mandala offering, the Vajrayogini sadhana is really just an amplification of that. You visualize being someone beautiful who gathers into themselves all good things. And then, lest you invest in, invest in that self-image to the point of egotism, you destroy it. Not only that, you savor the destruction. And the meditation asks you to keep doubling down to the point at which you realize that even your fantasies about enlightenment are hollow, misleading, and grandiose. But by using sexual imagery, oh, and I also forgot to mention that I'm also dancing in a ring of fire, uh, the process is intensified. And by crossing genders, at least for male practitioners who would be in the majority, and that's another subject, some strange deconstruction of identity happens that I can't quite understand. 
And then by destroying that body, there's not only an acceptance of impermanence, but a recognition that the destruction of things is a kind of nourishment. But also, I can't ignore that there's something psychotically violent in all of this, something tinged with misogyny. It's at once a fantasy of liberation, but also a nightmare of shadow and gore. And that reminds me of QAnon. But then again, so too does my Catholic childhood. Like I didn't really have to go on a neo-colonial credit card busting journey to India to learn about eating flesh and blood. So the big reason that I'm disclosing something that I vowed to keep secret is that this genre of practices wasn't always undertaken alone. There's a long tradition of male tantric adepts doing variations of this visualization, but in real life, fantasizing that they are male divinities engaged in ritual sex with live female partners who were probably sometimes girls. To my knowledge, the modern history of how this has involved abuse or rape is not fully researched, but I think we can probably imagine what the history is. I do know that many tantric cultures contain this history. I also know that the neo-tantra movements that are centered on spiritual sex have picked this thread up, usually by wishing away its obvious patriarchy. The Buddhist tantras are filled with references to secret sexual practices by which male yogis hope to, to attain esoteric realizations. There's an 8th century Indian mystic, Saraha, who described that, trigger warnings again, the bodies of 8-year-old, 12-year-old, and 16-year-old girls had unique wisdom-bestowing qualities. He advised feeding 12-year-old girls honey and sweets while telling them of the pleasures of kissing. Now, this theme comes up in medieval yoga as well, but there's very little scholarship, of course, on who these women and girls were. There is some scholarship coming, so I'm hopeful about that. Now, in modern global contexts, we know that so-called authentic tantric Tibetan teachers like Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, for example, the founder of Shambhala International, committed clerical sexual abuse constantly. And as some of my future reporting with, will show, some of his victims were very young. Recently, two members of Shambhala International have been charged with sexually abusing minors. One was just sentenced. Now, Michael Roach's main female attendants were always significantly younger than him. So there's this very long shadow cast by this medieval idolization of the beautiful yogini girl. So basically what I'm describing here is my initiation into a process of self-hypnosis involving the deep psychic contemplation of sex and violence. And that meditation, which yielded intense and nameless sensations, is surrounded by real-world events and impacts. It leaves survivors. So maybe now it's starting to make more sense that I'm speaking about this in relation to QAnon. When I described the relatively childlike mandala offering, that was like kindergarten, as I said. The tantric offering is like 
black magic wizard school. And I know that it uses some of the same elements that other transformational spiritualities employ, ritualized meditation on death, meticulous concentration on bodily sensation, and following charismatic leadership that you believe to be divine, and also the belief that sexuality and spirituality are inseparable. And always, always, all of the rules and all of the texts written by men. It all makes me wonder about whether or not QAnons, whether they've been exposed to this material or material like this or not, whether there's an overlap. They're visualizing themselves into a rich and provocative landscape and play action in which they are the suffering but also triumphant and liberated hero. They get to obsess on sex and death and sexual crimes in the most macabre ways. And it's justified and perhaps cathartic because their salvation is assured. They are conjuring a world of amplified terror, but also possibility. They're attracted to something abject. And as I suggested before about the conflation of child vaccination with child sexual abuse, this worldview can't help but to fantasize about countless sick and abused children. I would say that in protesting what is not there, they might be showing they want it to be there. One thing I should make clear is that nobody gave me any preparation for the psychological complexity of these practices. There wasn't any like psychi psychiatric intake evaluation. There were no questions that were asked about, you know, like what might trigger me or what my history was. And part of this is about the fractured nature of this globalized economy of tantric Buddhism. Essentially, I received these teachings as a tourist. Now, the initiations were legitimate and the Lama I had was well qualified. So, you know, that was good, I guess, but it's not like I was brought up in a system that would allow me to understand the process of what I was being given. And like many neo-colonial spiritual tourists, what I did with the practices was highly personalized and self-serving. But at the same time, it wasn't bad because I think I had some safeguards within me that allowed me to understand that this really was about inner work. I can't say that that was true for everybody that I practiced with. Some of my colleagues seemed to believe that these practices should be manifesting themselves in real life. And in fact, for a while, Michael Roach adopted the garb and the dress of Vajrayogini. He didn't dance around naked, thank God, but he did let his hair grow out very long and, and he adorned himself with some of the ritual elements and, and adornments. And he took on a more genderqueer appearance, all the while maintaining his coterie of young, very obedient female attendants. So I was lucky that I didn't mimic that, that I didn't take this material and project it outwards. I didn't see it as representative of consensus reality or of a reality that I wanted to inhabit. I understood it to be a symbolic process. Now, as my conversation with Theo Wildcroft unpacked, 
the manipulative and politicized side of QAnon co-opts and weaponizes very real trauma experiences, experiences that have been forced into secrecy to the point at which they can become symbolic or mythic. Add to this now the context that surrounds and complicates it all. All of the terrifying ritual adventures already embedded in spiritual practice. Meditating on death and chaos is not unique, and obviously it helps some of us come to grips with existential terrors. As an emerging religion, I'm wondering if QAnon is playing this function for some people. This would make it a real mistake to dismiss it as naive or insane. But just as with the Tibetan Tantrism I practiced for years, there would have to be good guidance when journeying in the symbolic order. Uh, guidance that's better than the YouTube AI, for sure. The trick would be to somehow use spiritual practice to release one's repressions around sexuality and death, should one have these, but then also without broadcasting or cosplaying the unresolved fantasies that this might involve. Your catharsis must not become another person's panic. Now, more than ever, we really have to avoid accusing others about what we ourselves are working on or about what we ourselves are confused about. Thank you for listening to Conspirituality. You can find us on any major podcast player as well as conspirituality.net, where you'll find our YouTube videos, resources, and other fun material. You can also find us on YouTube directly at youtube.com slash conspirituality, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash conspiritualitypodcast, and finally on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality. If you are interested in supporting us and helping us grow this project into something larger, which we are looking to do, we would appreciate it very much. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week.